0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Good to study God's Word together. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Studying through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and today we are going to examine the eighth and final beatitude. To bring us into this one, let's remember back into Matthew chapter 4 where Matthew said that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And by this, Jesus was really telling us there are only two kingdoms. Uh, They're what his disciple, the apostle Paul, called the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You have the kingdom of darkness of this world, you have the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom under Jesus' rule and reign. And in one sense, all of life, all people, can be boiled down to this distinction. Those in Jesus' kingdom and those not. And those in Jesus' kingdom, their lives, that they are in their kingdom, let's put it this way, that they are in the kingdom should be obvious by their lives. That's the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so he opens this sermon, Matthew chapter 5, by teaching us in the first 12 verses here, What we call the Beatitudes, these beautiful and blessed attitudes of those in his kingdom. And the following verses, the rest of chapter 5 on through chapter 7, are a description of the lifestyle of those in his kingdom. This is what kingdom citizens are and what they look like. So, First comes a description of a citizen of his kingdom's attitude, and then comes a description of the lifestyle. And I stress this every week, because I cannot stress it enough as we study this. The Beatitudes are the foundation for the whole sermon. Jesus' sermon. Everything that follows in chapters five, six, and seven build on these attitudes. Let me say this another way. Everything else in this sermon that we're gonna study builds on our embrace of these attitudes, our embrace of them. Not just, oh, they sound nice. Not just, oh, some of the I'm good at this one, but not that one, and so I'll focus. No, they all build on us embracing these attitudes. This is so key. And this last attitude we're going to look at today becomes then a reflection of and a test of our embracing of the first seven attitudes. So everything in the rest of the sermon builds on these eight attitudes and the first seven build up to this eighth one. So we're kind of, we're at this place where everything pivots now in the sermon on us embracing all these attitudes, including and in a special way, especially this one. And that's what you have to answer today as you leave this sermon, as you leave this word. Have you, will you embrace This eighth attitude. Blessed are those, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before me. Now, as we look at this, I wonder if if what stood out to me stood out to you. There's repetition here. That The beatitude in verse 10, the first one, is repeated and even elaborated on verses 11 and 12. This is unique in the beatitudes. And I imagine the reason for this is that what Jesus says here is so strange. I mean, it's just, it's shocking what he's saying here. Maybe we're so familiar with it, it's lost its shock. But if we think about embracing this attitude in our own lives, maybe it gets a little bit more of that shock. This is a shocking this is a shocking beatitude. We can imagine his disciples were what? like, wait, what did Jesus just say? Like, poor in spirit, okay, yeah, I understand that. Compassionate, okay, yeah, I get that. Pure in heart, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Embrace a blessed life of persecution. Wait, what? What did you just say, Jesus? And Jesus, just anticipating all this, and so he repeats himself so that he's abundantly clear and he underlines it by personalizing it. Did you catch that? This is the first time in the Beatitudes he shifts from this kind of third person into the first. Verse 11 Blessed are you when others revile you. See how I keep saying this? And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's the sheer shock of this beatitude, and it's the way Jesus repeats himself and elaborates on this point, and then even personalize it, and it's the fact that the, it's the conclusion of the beatitudes that says to me, this is all really important to Jesus. And it should be really important for us as citizens of God's kingdom. We need to think biblically about persecution. And for us in the States, it's never been more relevant in our lifetime than it is today, which we're going to talk about. But let me lay it out for you. I've got four observations, four observations this morning about persecution drawn from this text. And the first one is persecution is normal. Persecution is, is normal. One of the things Jesus is saying here is that if you are living in the kingdom of God, you are guaranteed persecution. It's just normal Christianity. That's why the reformer Martin Luther reckoned suffering and persecution as one of the marks of a true Christian or a true church. Why? Because it demonstrates that we're actually following a suffering and persecuted Savior. That's what it means to be a disciple, to follow him. So if we are persecuted and suffering in Jesus, then that shows we're actually following in his footsteps. Jesus taught us the same thing in John 15. He said it like this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before I hated you. So Jesus is saying here, listen, if the world hates you, get this, I beat you there because they hated me first. I was hated before you were. And then he goes on to elaborate, verses 19 and 20. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You'd be part of its system. Of course it'd love you. But here's the thing. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute me you. Persecution is normal for Christians. Paul, the apostle, says the same thing. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who, Paul? All will. No exceptions. Everybody will. What for, Paul? For living a godly life life, for walking in obedience to Jesus, for following him, for that you're going to be persecuted. Now, Peter says it the same way, but he flips this on his head. He said, 1 Peter 4.4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They revile you. They slander you. They falsely charge you. Why? Because you won't join into their debauchery. That's why. Because you won't join their sensuality and their passions and their drunken orgies and their greed. For the Christian, persecution is as much an aspect of discipleship. Persecution is as much an aspect of discipleship as being humble is as being righteous, as being compassionate. This is normal Christianity. Uh, persecution, for the Christian, is, at least, is a lot like pain when you're working out. At least when I work out. If you're really working out, right? If you're really working yourself... You experience pain. There's breaking down of muscles happening and rebuilding of them and and you feel the pain of it and you know, as long as you don't overdo it, you know that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. That's a normal thing. That's what the pain of persecution is like for Christians. This is just normal Christianity. I was reading the latest Voice of the Martyrs magazine and in it there is an interview with a Christian woman named uh, Naomi. Uh, She's from Nigeria. She's a Christian, and the Christians in her village there were the attacks, the target of attacks, for, uh, or by Boko, Boko Haram, a militant Muslim group. And she relates the story of the attack happening, and she was working out in the fields, and she's running into town to try to find her kids, and, and as she is, she's running by people she knows who lay beheaded on the ground or bullet-ridden and you know, there's I mean you could talk about persecution as a Christian, but there's there's no there's no really being prepared for that kind of suffering and persecution. I mean, you you can't just be ready for that. No one's no one's looking for that to come at them. And yet she's saying theologically, this is in the interview, she says, but theologically, she wasn't surprised because this is what her church had taught her. This is what her pastor had taught her. And so I'm gonna be a faithful pastor and teach it to you. Persecution is God's word fulfilled. Persecution is God's word fulfilled. He has promised it. He has prophesied it. He has told you. It's coming. It's normal. And praise God, he spared Naomi's life so that she could spread that truth around the world, persecution is God's word fulfilled for Christians. This is normal Christianity. That's observation number one. Observation number two, persecution is for righteousness' sake. Persecution is for righteousness' sake. The persecution Jesus blesses is for doing right, not wrong. You see that in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now some of us need to notice this, some of us need to pay attention, some of us need to underline this because I want you to notice Jesus does not bless us for being evangelical jerks on social media and then getting a bunch of spiteful comments and saying, oh I'm being persecuted. No you're not, you're being a jerk. Jesus does not bless obnoxious Christians He blesses us for doing what's right. Peter says the same thing a couple of times in his his first epistle. In chapter two, verses 19 and 20, he writes, for this is a gracious thing. He means a commendable thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you suffer for doing good, and endure, this is a gracious, it's a commendable thing in the sight of God. And then again in chapter three, verse 14, I like this, Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's almost Jesus' beatitude verbatim. I mean, you can tell Peter's taking notes this day on the Sermon on the Mount, he was there listening. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're persecuted not because we're out looking for conflict, because we're peacemakers, but persecution happens because we are seeking to live in the light, and often the light of righteousness brings conviction to those living in darkness, and like a cornered animal, they lash out and attack. They'd rather attack us than accept Jesus. And so this is, this is, a, this is a searching truth for us to sit under. This is a searching truth for us to sit under. This is how the saints used to talk about sermons. You know, we leave sermons today and we say, what would you think of the sermon? Or how do you think the preacher did? Or what do you think about what he said? Or did you like the sermon? What they used to say was, how did you fare under the word? How did you fare under the word? No one cares if you liked it. If I was wanting you to like things, I wouldn't be preaching about persecution, right? It's how do you fare under it? And this is a searching word. How do we fare under this? Because if we've never experienced any persecution at all, then there are are searching questions we need to ask ourselves. This is where I was convicted by this passage. here's uh, Here's a searching question for you. Is your righteousness being displayed? Is your righteous living on display? Because if we can't point to seasons of persecution or, or to instances of persecution, we have to ask ourselves, well, we could we break that question down into two parts. One, are we living righteously? Let's start there first. Are we really living righteously? Are we living with integrity? Are we standing up for truth? Are we embracing chastity? Are we self-controlled so that we say no to debauchery? Are we, are we defending others? So first, do we live righteously? Second, is our righteousness really on display? Because I have in mind here, this is the thing, it's a lot easier to live a righteous life at home, a loud righteous life at home, and then to go out into the workplace and live a real quiet life. Right, not wanting to rock the boat. It's easy to live a righteous life at church and in community group and talk about the righteous things we live and the righteous things we stand for and the righteous convictions we have and the the righteous ways we want to stand up for truth. And then we go out into the neighborhood and we get real quiet. Not one to say anything that that might make some waves. Only speaking about things that we know people will probably agree with us on. And then we justify saying, I'm just trying to make bridges. Just trying to make bridges. This is a searching truth for us to sit under. You know what Jesus says to us, if that's us? And I say us because I count myself under this word here with you, if you're under it with me. I'm guilty as charged here. Here's what Jesus says to us. This came to me like a hit me. Luke six twenty five. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you. Woe to me. If everybody I know only speaks well of me, I'm likely in poor company. I'm counted with the false prophets. But Matthew five twelve, Jesus' point is, we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and we're in good company, for so they persecuted the prophets. There's a searching word. I think, I think it searches even a little further. Maybe we're not living righteously, or maybe our righteousness isn't on display. Or here's another reason. Maybe we have retreated so far out of the world that our righteousness no longer has an impact. Like, I'm I'm living a righteous life, and I'll show people my right, I'll display it, but I'm so far back from the world, it's got no impact. I have no relationships. I've withdrawn from the world. Pulled back into my safe little haven. But that's not an option for faithful Christians, right? Like, just look at your Bibles. Look with me at at the Beatitudes here, right? Like, we're following Jesus' teachings. Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, yep, get that, Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Whoa, searching hard word, Jesus. Okay, what's next week? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, you hear this word about persecution? Don't you dare pull back. You have a calling on your life. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Get out there. Rub up against people with your saltiness. Don't you dare pull back into your your schooling, your Christian schooling, and your church, and your family, and your co-op, and hide that light. Don't put it under a bushel. You are the salt and the light of the earth. You see how searching of a beatitude it is then? This is meant to search us. This is good for it to search us. Do we experience persecution for righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake? And if not, why not? Because Jesus' promise of blessing, of favor, is held out for us if we do. So why are we not willing to live a persecuted life? Here's my, here's my challenge to you, if you need a real practical challenge. You're just like, okay, Jason, like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Well, here's what I want you to do. This is not me. This is, I mean, hopefully this is the Lord, but let's just speak, right? If you want a challenge, here it is. Our country cherishes freedoms, including religious freedom. Now, I know that's under attack, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute, but it's still cherished compared to many countries. It's still a core of who we are, right? So here's my challenge. Go live out your freedom. Make much of the name of Jesus this week. Get out there and put your righteousness on display and make Jesus known. Even if you'll be persecuted. But okay. Maybe you're going to take the challenge. Persecution's going to come. We need to know how it's going to come. Well, Jesus tells us. This is observation number three. Persecution comes in different forms. It comes in different forms. That's what this beatitude says. Persecution comes in different forms or ways. Jesus uses three different words here to describe persecution. The the first one's persecution. Just that word, persecution. Kind of that... Um, Umbrella word, it's the word we think of when we're talking about this subject. It comes from the word that means to pursue or to go after someone. But it it carries the sense of the implication that you're going to cause them harm. You're going to cause them to suffer. You're pursuing them to hurt them, whether physically or emotionally. And this is the kind of persecution we think of most of the time, uh, and is why we typically think of persecution as things that happen in other countries, right? Because it does, at such an extreme level compared to here in the States. Uh, I read an appalling statistic this week out of, out of Pakistan. You know, majority Muslim countries are generally really dangerous for Christians. And in Pakistan, I read this week that an average of, of two Christian women or girls, down to the ages of 13 and 14, are kidnapped every day to be forced to convert to Islam and to marry a Muslim man. Two every day. That's normal Christianity in Pakistan. And I could go on and talk about the dramatic increase of violence against Christians Northern India and Africa, about concentration camps, essentially, in Western China and North Korea, about church bombings in Sri Lanka and other places. You've probably heard about all that. If not, you can go out and Google it, you can go to ministries like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors. They'll tell you all about it. Persecution of Christians is a real humanitarian crisis around the world. But let's talk about here in the States. Let's talk about where we are. We tend to experience persecution differently. It's not as violent as it is in other countries. But we are still pursued in hostile ways. And increasingly so in our day. And so I could list off a number of examples of this, but let's just take the one that's large in my mind right now. The House of Representatives just passing the Equality Act. In effect, this erases all legal distinctions between male and female in public life it's not a law yet it hasn't passed the center of science, but it passed the house right and it 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 would legally erase those distinctions between male and female and it puts us on a direct crash course not just with science and biology right I mean that but it, puts us on, it it's a direct crash course with orthodox Christian convictions about sexuality. So here's some exact wording from the Equality Act. An individual shall not be denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room, that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. Right? So that's how they identify, not what they biologically are. This applies to, it goes on to say, any establishment that provides a good service or program including a store, shopping center, online retailer, or service provider, salon, bank, gas station, food bank, service or care center, shelter, travel agency, or funeral parlor, or establishment that provides healthcare, accounting, or legal services. And then it goes on to say, any organization that receives any federal funding. So let me just tease out what this means for you, in case you haven't heard about this or thought about this. This legislation would force shelters for battered women, women who are trying to escape abusive men, it would force those shelters to admit biological men who identify as women. Now, all female prisons would be forced to admit males who identify as female into that prison body. Women's sports team, and do you, see how, I mean, do you see how this particularly puts women at a disadvantage here? Women's sports team and athletic competitions must be opened up to LGBTQ men. School and public restrooms, I mean, here's our kids, school and public restrooms and locker rooms must be opened to both sexes. Not just restrooms, locker rooms. Religious adoption and foster care services would be forced to compromise their convictions about marriage and the family or shut their doors and students any students receiving federal tuition assistance would not be able to apply to Christian schools or universities that hold orthodox convictions on marriage and sex The Equality Act This is what it does legally Anyone who affirms the reality of biological sex would be legally, in the law's eyes, relegated to the same status as a racist who oppresses African-Americans or other racial minorities. This is legal—well, legally, what it is, is it's coercing Americans, but especially Christians, into compliance with the sexual revolution. It's legislative persecution aimed at, among other things, Christian righteousness. That's one example of Christian persecution coming in our day. And I could give other examples related to COVID regulations or, or other things. The point is, is it's happening and it's increasing. And we have to decide, are we going to take a stand for righteousness' sake? That's one form of persecution. The other form of persecution, way more common here in the United States, though, is the other form Jesus is talking about, which is verbal insult or verbal assault, right? And we see this in the other two phrases Jesus uses in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So, revile that means to heap insults on, to utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, that's talking about spreading lies, gossiping, slandering about you. What stands out to me about these different forms of persecution Jesus here, there's three. What stands out to me is that that two, well, what stands out to me is that I tend to think of persecution as the first one, this hostile pursuit, but Two of the three that Jesus lists are verbal. Which tells me persecution is way more common in the States than I think about it as. Because verbal persecution happens a lot here. We can be ridiculed by others. And I think this is where the rubber's going to meet the road for most of us this week, you know, this month, as we try to live out this word. We just don't like our neighbor or our coworker talking badly about us, right? Like, that's where real persecution happens for most of us. We just don't want people to talk badly about us, to think badly about us. I mean, teenage Christians, this has got to be so relevant to your life. Are you willing to live for Christ without compromise? And I'm not even talking about witnessing here. I'm just talking about not watching certain things, not listening to certain things, not wearing certain things, not doing certain things that your friends do, maybe even who claim to be Christians, but they don't understand why you won't do it. Because they're gonna make fun of you, they're gonna revile you, they're gonna utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely, but they'll do it on Jesus' account. Are you willing to live like that? Are we willing to let others revile us and speak evil about us? The early church was accused pretty consistently of, of four things. One, cannibalism. Why were, they, why were they accused of cannibalism? Any guesses? OK, Mr. Wilson gets up here and says, I've got a clue, and everyone shouts and screams. I ask a question and no one speaks. Let's try this again. Communion, Communion. yes. Cannibalism, because communion. Eating the bread and drinking the blood. Ah, these weird Christian cannibals. Okay, second one. Sexual promiscuity. Any guesses why that? Virgin Mary? Oh, that's a good guess, no? It was because the Lord's Supper was often called a love feast. Love feast. And for certain people inclined a certain way to think, that sounds pretty sexualized. Number three, they were called revolutionaries. Why? Because Jesus is their king, not Caesar. Four, divisive. Why? Because Jesus separates families. People get converted and go different ways. Listen, being reviled and charged falsely is just a part of the Christian life. If we're witnessing for Jesus, if we're living for Jesus. Are we willing to walk into that? I hope so, because point number four, observation four, persecution results in great joy. Great joy. We need some joy now. Okay, so good. Give us joy, Jesus. The persecution Jesus is talking about that is for righteousness' sake and is on his account, results in great joy. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before me. Jesus gives us two reasons for joy here, at at least two reasons. The first is that it points to future reward. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Excuse me, heaven, so he points to future reward. Now, okay, so how do we make this alive to us? If you, hopefully you still got your Bibles open. Look over at chapter six with me for a minute. Most of us are familiar with the first part of chapter six here because it's, it's where Jesus teaches us uh, the Lord's prayer. He teaches us how to pray, right? But if you remember at the very beginning of that, in verse one of chapter six, he talks about being aware that you don't practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of confusing because I thought we were supposed to be persecuted for righteousness sake. So aren't we supposed to live our righteousness out in front of other people? Yes, Jesus is saying, but don't do it so that everybody thinks something of you. Like, wow, what a Christian, what a guy, what a righteous person. See, he has a different concern now. now he's saying, don't live your righteousness out in front of people for status. So Jesus has that aim here. Our, our concern, really the security we look to take in what other people think of us. That I'm a certain kind of person. Then a little bit later in, verse, or in chapter 6, verses 19 on there, we get that, that lesson about laying up treasures in heaven, right? So here he has that aim, the security we take in our stuff. Don't lay up for your treasures here. Don't, get, don't, get, don't find your security in your stuff here. And then he goes into talking about not being anxious about your life and survival is what he has in mind here. The security we take in just safety. So really, in chapter 6, Jesus has an aim here, kind of this unholy trinity of securities that we take. Security in our status, security in our stuff, security in our safety, and and really what I'm using this to show you is you can never enjoy the reward that Jesus holds out in this beatitude in chapter 5 if if what you're living for, if what's important to you is protecting what people think of you, or if what's important to you is protecting your possessions, your income, your, your retirement, or protecting your survival and your safety and your, your family safety, if those things are what's important to you, then there's promise of reward in heaven It just gonna fall on death. Undefe- that doesn't really matter to me, Jesus. This life matters to me. And that's a problem because that's not what Jesus came to save us from. That's not what Jesus came to teach us in. But Jesus is saying, listen, if those things aren't where your security is, then when persecution comes, it's no big loss if you lose your job or you lose your stuff because your reward is great in heaven. Oh, That's kind of back to a searching word on us, isn't it? Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we wonder why we have to suffer persecution in this life, and God's answer is, because I want to give you more glory in the life to come. I want to give it to you. But you only get it through hardship in this life. Oh, God has such glorious rewards for us in heaven. Let's set our mind on things above. The first reason Jesus gives us for joy and persecution points to a future reward. And so we got to get our minds heavenly minded. Your reward is great in heaven. The second reason is, he says, it points to past examples, past examples uh, this is the last half of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, like, I'm being persecuted for my faith. People are making fun of me. Maybe I'm going to lose my job. Maybe I'm even going to go to jail. And Jesus, you're saying I'm supposed to rejoice and be glad because so they persecuted the prophets? What joy does that give me? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. Listen, when persecution comes... It doesn't feel spiritual. It feels earthly. It, it, it feels random, it feels painful, it feels like loss. It, it feels like the world and the devil are winning. And Jesus is saying, "Well, one place you can find joy is to look to the past and find you're actually in really good company." Isaiah according to Jewish tradition, was sawn in half. Jeremiah, Scripture tells us, was beaten and put into the stocks. Amos was insulted and barred from the temple. Micah was put in prison. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, When your family is divided on account of Jesus, when you lose a friend or a job because of your faith, it doesn't feel spiritual, but Jesus is saying, you're actually surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You are linking yourself up with a rich heritage of godly people. And of course, Jesus is the the richest link of them all, right? we are suffering as we follow our suffering savior rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven and so they persecuted the prophets who were before you in conclusion i want to share with you a story from the life of joseph son which i hope is an encourage, i hope to encourage you with this um, jo- Joseph was a, a Romanian pastor uh, who was persecuted uh, largely in the 70s under uh, the communist rule there. And he was imprisoned. He was beaten many times. He was, um, he was, his life was threatened. Uh, on many occasions, he thought he was going to die. I got to hear Joseph, Joseph speak at a, um, a pastor's conference once, and he was talking about persecution and likeness. And he shared a story. That I have two stories I want to tell you, one to really end us. And one, just this first one, because it's just fun. <laughs> you know, people who have, who have really suffered for Jesus have great stories about how, how Jesus met them, but like in surprising ways sometimes, right? And so he told this one great story about um, the importance of thinking biblically about persecution, which we are talking about today. And he was in, he was in a season of, of interrogation that was just particularly brutal. And He was overwhelmed with fear. He was um, he was literally beaten down. He was he was he was he was under the beatings And he was close to giving up his witness He was close to just quitting and he was able to, to, to meet with his wife And he's under all this and he's telling her he just doesn't know if he can hold out and he just doesn't know if he Can keep enduring this and he just doesn't know if he can do it and she looked at him and she said Joseph, you've said all along that you wanted to die for Christ. Well, go do it. (laughs) And that, he said, put some steel back into his spine, as it would any, you know, man. And then, because this is a pastor's conference, he says as an aside, gentlemen, beware teaching your wife theology like this. (laughs) But here's the story I really wanted to share with you. When he was a young man, Joseph had been kicked out of Romania for his faith. He'd been exiled. And so, Joseph traveled to England, and he went to Oxford to get um, an education, and and he was mentored there by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is a really good way to spend an exile if you you have to be on one. Three years later, he started to sense God calling him to go back to minister in Romania, but he was a fugitive. He was a wanted man, so it was essentially a, a death sentence. And he shared this with, with some of his friends at Oxford. And, and they said to him, Joseph, what do you think your chances of success are? And he reflected, well, that is a very typical Western way of thinking. Because in Romania, when you come to Christ, they don't talk to you about your chances of success. They say to you, wait a minute, are you ready to lose your job? Are you ready to be persecuted all your life? Have you count the cost? Nevertheless, Joseph took their question, and he went back to his room, and he decided he would ask God this question. So in prayer, he said, Well, Lord, what are my chances of success? And he said the Lord immediately answered him and said, Joseph, I love how the Lord spoke to him very personally. Joseph, my answer is in Matthew 10. I send you as a sheep in the midst of wolves. And he felt the Lord give him a vision of a pack of wolves surrounding a sheep, and the Lord impressed upon him this question. What chance does that sheep have to survive, much less convert one of those wolves? Now, this is where Joseph says all his theology changed. Because he told God, you are my father and my king, and as my king, you say, go to Romania, and I say, yes, sir, I go. But as my father, I want to know Why you send children into the midst of wolves? Joseph said to God, I want to understand your mind. And the answer was quick to come to him again. Joseph, the Lord Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I send you. He sent me as a lamb to the slaughter. I send you as a lamb to the wolves. But can't you see, Joseph, as the lamb goes to the wolves with the gospel and with love and with the attitude of self-sacrifice, when the wolves jump on him and start tearing him to pieces, but that lamb with his last breath says, but I still love you, then at least some of the wolves will shudder and poof, they will become lambs. And then this is what Jesus said to Joseph, love conquers. And Joseph said, then he understood the essence of Jesus' strategy, that this is how he had conquered Joseph's heart. And this is how Jesus has conquered for over 2,000 years. And Joseph says, now I'm ready to go. So, are we ready to go with the gospel and with an attitude of love and self-sacrifice? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, As we said, this is a a searching word. And I feel like on one sense, really the only response we can have to it is one of, of rejection or surrender. One of repulsion or embrace. And we have to really wrestle. We have to really wrestle with this because it's easy to affirm it in here at church, it's so hard to live it out at work and with our neighbors. So, Father, I, I pray for, I pray for this congregation, I pray for those listening online, Lord, I pray that you would give us oh God, give us, give us courage, Lord. Give us faith to live by your word and not by sight. Give us love to trust you and your ways. Help us to embrace your strategy that love conquers, real love. Help us to love our neighbor. God, help us to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake on your account. And God, make us salt and light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as we start to wind down the service. We want to do so taking the Lord's Supper. Whether, you're a, whether you call this church your home or not, if you're a Christian, you are welcome to join us. This is a, a table that Jesus has laid for his followers and so we invite all Christians to come join with us and sup here. Now, If you're not a Christian, uh, we want you to know you're, we're glad you're here with us. We're glad to have you in our church home. Um, but what we're about to do is a real expression of faith. It's an act of faith. Um, by what we do, we are confessing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And so if that's not an expression of faith you have made or can make, then we would ask you refrain Um, but to observe and watch the confession of faith that we make.